Welcome to each one of you. I'm glad to see you all. The last uh, hymn we sang, that's a great missionary hymn and a, a wonderful hymn with great words in it. <clears throat> and today we'd like to consider King Hezekiah. He was a very good king, by and large. <clears throat> There's quite a bit in the scripture about him. He began by renewing the worship, cleansing the temple, having a great Passover, getting Israel back on track. They'd really gotten off the beaten track and had forgotten about God, but he helped bring them back. And eventually then, they were attacked by Sennacherib, a very vicious king of Assyria. And there was a remarkable victory that God gave them over him. Well, let's go back here to one of the great passages, Second Chronicles, beginning with chapter 29. Chapters 29, 30, 31 deal with the preparations and renewing of things. Then chapter 32 deals with this remarkable victory. So if you'd join me here, I'd like to read, first of all, from the beginning of his reign. We find here in chapter 28, <clears throat> Second Chronicles. Excuse me, chapter 29. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. So you see, he'd have been about 40, 53 or 4 when he passed away. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, unlike some of his predecessors, according to all that David, his father, had done. So he's compared with David, King David, in a favorable light. He, in the first year of his reign, right when he was starting out, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he repaired them. You see, they had fallen into disrepair, along with many other things. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together to the east street. And he said to them, Listen to me, you Levites. Sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the filthiness out of the holy place. Things had really deteriorated. Worship had fallen off. The house was dropping through, as it says elsewhere, by neglect. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. And they have forsaken him, and they have turned away their faces 
from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath, the anger of the Lord was on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, to hissing, as you see with your eyes. For look, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. So you see, King Hezekiah, right at the start, he tackled head on the sins of Israel, the neglect of God's house, the temple, the neglect of worshiping the Lord. Do we ever see any of this happening today? Are there those who neglect God, even professing Christians sometimes? Do they sometimes go their own way instead of God's way? And do we sometimes profess one thing but have a problem living the way that we profess? They'd had some bad kings. They had led the people away from God. But now they had a good king, one who believed in God and who was willing to bring God's worship back as it ought to be. And so here in the beginning of verse 29, we find that dealt with. Now let's go on to the next chapter, chapter 30. Part of the restoration of the worship involved the Passover. The outgrowth of that, the fulfillment of that is the Eucharist, the Last Supper, the new covenant of Jesus. New Testament in my blood. But in getting back now to God, one of the things they needed to do was reinstitute the Passover. Now you remember what that was, don't you? Remember when they'd been slaves in Egypt and God had brought great judgments upon the Egyptians? And finally, a terrible judgment was to befall. The firstborn of people and of animals would die. But Israel was instructed that they were to kill a lamb or a goat and put its blood on the doorposts and lentil. And the destroying angel would pass over. They would not be judged. They would be, as it were, protected by the blood of the lamb. And so that's what happened. And the Passover is a remembrance each year of that great event, that great victory. And so that's one of the things that Hezekiah dealt with, is reinstituting the annual Passover service. Chapter 30, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and he wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh up in the north. They'd been conquered by 
the Assyrians, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel, because the king had taken counsel with his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month, because they couldn't keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. Neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. So actually they ended up doing it a month late. <laughs> that was not according as God had instructed them. And so evidently there was a little bit of punishment, but Hezekiah prayed for them and it says God healed the people. So he did allow that. So they reinstituted the Passover. So they've been cleaning up the temple, reinstituting the worship services, the daily, and now the annual events as well. Hezekiah was a very good king. Now under the next chapter, chapter 31. Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and they broke the images in pieces and cut down the groves and threw down the high places and the altars out of all Judah and Benjamin in Ephraim also up in the north that had been conquered and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. So he went a step further and got rid of these idols and this false worship. Sometimes if we don't watch out, we set up idols in our own hearts, don't we? Whether it be greed or self or whatever it might be, anything that comes before God is represented as an idol. These things need to be eliminated in our lives, do they not? It's kind of all summarized then here in the last verse of chapter 31. Chapter 31 of 2 Chronicles, verse 31. 21, rather. 31, 21. And in every work that he, Hezekiah, began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. That's a great summary, isn't it? And a great example for us. He did it with all his heart. And you see then he prospered and God's blessing was upon him. He was guiding those about him. And as king he was setting a great example. And so we too as professing Christians. Need to set a great example for those about us. Not only with church attendance. But in all ways. Especially in our homes and with our families, and with our friends. And so after all this great improvement, after this reestablishment of worship, after the reinstitution of the Passover, after the breaking down of the idols, now came a severe test. We read about this in chapter 32, chapter 32 of Second Chronicles. By the way, back in 1 Kings 18 and following, it talks about these things, as well as the middle of the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah 37, 38, and 39. Okay, then to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. After these things, after he'd done all these good things, and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and camped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. Now the Assyrians were a very vicious and cruel people. In fact, I think it was one of our children, Kerry, who's been here before, he talked with an Assyrian man who, who admitted that. He said they were very cruel people, and he was Assyrian. And anyway, he went against Judah and others and sought to get them as well. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his strong men to stop up the waters of the fountains which were outside the city, and they did help him. So there were gathered many people together, and they stopped all the springs, the fountains, and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find a lot of water? Also he strengthened himself and built up the wall that was broken down, raised it up to the towers and another wall outside, and repaired Milo in the city of David, and made darts and shields in abundance. And he set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city, and spoke comfortably to them, saying, now here's his words of encouragement. These are great words, especially under those circumstances. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid, nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the crowd that is with him, because there is more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Jehovah, the Lord, our God, to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So he set a great example of faith, of trusting God. Now Sennacherib ended up conquering a city called Lachish. And there's a lot of archaeology that we have dealing with that particular conquest. In fact, there's a whole lot of archaeology dealing with <clears throat> the time of Hezekiah. And this interesting stopping of this spring that was up outside the city and then carrying it secretly into the city and camouflaging it outside, covering it over so the Assyrians wouldn't know that it was there. So it had a dual purpose. It would bring water to the city, which would be besieged, and it would deprive the Assyrian army of that source of water. Interestingly enough, uh, Leah, who's visiting us today and here with our service, she and Larry, her husband, visited in Israel, and Larry decided he'd go through this tunnel that Hezekiah built. It's still there. And I was quizzing him about that experience. It's hundreds of feet in length. It's about 
this wide, about as wide as your shoulder, so it's pretty narrow, maybe 20 inches in width. And he said at one point there, had to walk through water up above your knees, like between your knees and your hips. And uh, so he went through all that and saw this. And he also saw a point where the tunnel jogged maybe about eight inches. What had happened, you see, when Hezekiah did this, they started digging this tunnel for the water to carry it secretly inside the city walls. They started taking it from the spring but they also started digging from the other side. And so they met together. And at that point, they were like eight inches off, which is amazing when you really consider it, that they would be that close, coming from hundreds of feet away. And so he said when you would walk through there, you know, just like a little jog, it didn't amount to much. It was about eight inches, they were off. But when you consider not only this way, but up and down, to come that close, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? So Hezekiah built that tunnel, and still in existence today. It's an archaeological relic in one sense, and there's the water that's in it. And so King Hezekiah did what he could. He prepared. He renewed things. He brought people back to God he built this tunnel. He did everything he could do, humanly speaking. But then they did something else. Second Chronicles 32, verse 20. For this reason, Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah, who lived at that time, son of Amos, they prayed and they cried out to heaven, did what they could, trusted God. What a great example that is for us. Do what we can. Trust God for the, what we cannot do. They did. That's what we need to do daily with our lives, and our lives in a very general, broad sense as well. Well, you see, one of the terrible things that Sennacherib did then as they surrounded Jerusalem, he had an official spokesman named Rabshakeh. And Rabshakeh was saying all kinds of bad things against God and against God's people. He was speaking in the Jews' language instead of Assyrian. And they wanted him to talk in Assyrian so the people couldn't understand, but he's indicated he'd come to talk to the people and to demoralize them. He was getting after God. How could he deliver them? Why should they trust in Hezekiah? Look what King Sennacherib, the Assyrian, has done. He's conquered many places. And of course, as I said, he'd conquered uh, Lachish and other places. Why should you trust God? Why should you believe Hezekiah? He's going to do to you like he's done other places. Your gods are no better than the rest of them. Now, there they're really getting into hot water. God took a very dim view of what they were saying. So they were speaking against God himself and his power, as well as against Hezekiah and God's people. I learned from Matthew 25, in verse 40, 
that basically what someone does against a Christian, God's people, they are not only doing against the Christian, but against God himself. You see, Jesus lives in every Christian. And so if they're harming a Christian, they're harming God. On the other hand, if they're helping a Christian and love a Christian, then they're loving and doing God's will. Matthew 25, 40 helps us see that truth. And so Rabshakeh and the others were doing a very dangerous thing, speaking against God as well as against God's people. Well, what happened? Back here in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 21 and 22. And the Lord sent an angel which cut off the strong men of courage and the leaders and the captains in the camp of Assyria. God sent an angel. Now here it doesn't tell us as much as it tells us at another place I'd like to show you in a moment. But it goes on here and it says, so he returned, that is King Sennacherib the Assyrian, he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he was come into the house of his God, his false God, they who came out of his own innards, his sons, they killed him there with the sword. <laughs> so not only did he fail to conquer Jerusalem, but he was assassinated, executed, killed by two of his own sons. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Now, as I said, there's another place that's a little more enlightening here. Go with me back, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings 19. Here's how it expresses it here in one of these three great passages I mentioned earlier. Verse 35. And it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand, 185,000 soldiers. The other one didn't tell us how many. It said he did it. Here we learn it's 185,000. An angel. Angels must be very, very powerful. And when they got up early in the morning, that is, the Israelites inside the city, when they got up early in the morning, look, <clears throat> they were all dead corpses. So they looked over the wall, and it was strewn with dead soldiers, dead Assyrian soldiers. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, left, and he went and returned and lived in Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Remember, that's where earlier... Jonah had gone and called them to repentance, and they listened to him. So judgment was held off for a while. And it happened as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, it names here, his false god, that Adramelech and Sharezer, his sons, here they're named, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. So they would be held accountable, and they got themselves out of there. 
But so, in a more full way, we learn what happened here. Would you not say that this was a remarkable victory, <laughs> an unusual victory? God sent an angel. He took care of the situation. God answered the prayer of King Hezekiah and Amos, son of Amos, Isaiah the prophet. God answered their prayer in a mighty and a remarkable way. Now are there things in our lives that may seem as impossible to deal with as their being besieged by Sennacherib and his fierce army and all their cruelty? Are there things in our lives that we really need to deal with and we feel we can't handle? We do what we can, but they're overpowering. That's when we need to do like Isaiah and Hezekiah did. They did what they could, but then they trusted God. And might I add that sometimes victory doesn't come overnight like it did here. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes we have to keep praying about something over and over, really show God we truly want this thing, partly to help us realize, I think, that it's God who does give us the victory. We can't do it on our own. He does it in a wonderful and powerful way. Now, as you read more about King Hezekiah and the passages that I mentioned, we discover there came a point where God told him he was going to die. And he was really upset about that. He didn't want to die. And he was so upset that he really prayed out to God about this issue. Go with me back to the Isaiah account, chapter 38. A sign was given to him from the Lord that he was going to die, and so forth. And we find that God informed him about this. And here's how King Hezekiah responded. And he's recovered. He tells what happened. Now, often people figure when we die, that's totally settled we have nothing to say about that. Uh, many people have a very, very fatalistic point of view about when we're going to die. But this is very interesting because he was told that he was going to die at a certain point, and then he prayed to God that that wouldn't happen at that time. Well, could something as important as that be changed? Well, in verse 9, beginning here in Isaiah 38, the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered from his sickness, I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living, I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. My age is departed. It's removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off. I'm cut off like a weaver. My life, he will cut me off with pining sickness. 
from day to day, even night, you will make an end of me. He's going to have like a lingering uh, death. I reckon till morning that like a lion, so he will break all my bones. From day to night, you will make an end of me. Like a crane or a swallow, so I did chatter. I did mourn as a dove. My eyes fail with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and himself has done it. In other words, God had healed him. And as you read carefully in the scriptures, God added 15 years to his life. It wasn't all that fatalistic. God answered his prayer and things changed. They happened in a different way. And you know, I'm reminded of a statement in James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, it says, you don't have because you don't ask. Do you mean there are actually things that we miss out on because we don't pray about it? That's what it says. And here's a great example of how God answered in a remarkable way. And how did it affect then Hezekiah? Verse 15, what shall I say? He has both spoken to me and himself has done it. I shall go softly all my years. Bitterness of my soul. So he had like a new perspective of life. He was going to go softly, carefully before God. And should we not all learn from that? Should we all no, always go softly and carefully before God? Now there's one thing that happened in King Hezekiah's life in that added 15 years. Been better I guess if it had not happened. You can read about it in chapter 39 of Isaiah. What was that? Well, from Babylon, a rising and great power, they sent people to Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah showed them all his riches. He was probably pretty proud, uh, proud of what he had. He showed them all the riches. Well, it turns out years later that the Babylonians, who were now in power instead of the Assyrians, it turns out that the Babylonians came and they besieged Jerusalem and they conquered it. And those things that he'd shown to the people from Babylon, now they possessed. But the interesting thing is God revealed to Hezekiah even though this was a foolish thing he had done by showing them all those riches, yet he would not see it. He would pass away before that happened. <laughs> so he kind of said something like this, well, it'll be okay because I, I won't be here anymore. Well, that wouldn't really agree to the people who were there. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, that's what happened. So did he make good use of those remaining 15 added years to his life? Well, it looks like even though he tried to go softly, he may have messed up at least at that one point. So again, it calls us to use our time in ways that please and, and honor God. Now, there's one great thing that we can't do in which we need victory. And that is 
forgiveness, and eternal life. We can't do it because we can't earn it. We've all done things we shouldn't do. We all still have a fallen sin nature. We try to live for God, but we fail. We need his forgiveness. We need his love, his power to redeem us, to forgive us, to save us from our sins. In Matthew 1.21, it tells us that his name will be Jesus, that is Mary's son. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The J-E stands for Jehovah, it stands for God. The S-U-S stands for save, salvation. God is salvation, basically, is what the name Jesus means. And that's what he did. He did something we could not do. You see, he never sinned. He was virgin born. He didn't have the fallen sin nature. And he never gave in to sin, like Adam and Eve many years before had given in. And so he qualified to die for the sins of the world. No one else did qualify. And then he went ahead and did that. He gave the one great sacrifice for us all. And so the law was fulfilled. The punishment was exacted. God didn't just set aside justice and say, I forgive you, it's okay. God paid the penalty, the sentence, against sin when Jesus died. God is righteous. We see that's true in Romans 3.26 and elsewhere. God maintained his government of justice and in a righteous, just way, he is able to forgive us our sins. He did what we could not do. It's a matter of grace. It's not our works. We can't earn it. We failed. We received his gift, his gift of mercy. And eventually then, when we leave this world, our spirits will be perfected. Hebrews 12, 23 tells us that. Speaking of God's people in the afterlife, it speaks of their spirits being perfected. So if we die, spirit leaves the body and it's perfected. Then when Jesus comes, the bodies are raised, they are glorified, they're made like the resurrected body of Jesus. No longer do they have the sin nature. As the body is described, both ours and Jesus's in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the things it mentions is that it is a spiritual body. Now, some people think that means it's kind of ghostly, kind of ethereal. It's not a body of flesh and bones. That's incorrect. It is a body of flesh and bones. You remember that first Easter night, he, he told them, I'm not a ghost. I have a body of flesh and bones. He didn't say anything about blood. He didn't need blood in this new glorified body. He had a transformed body. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, it talks about, about the word spiritual using it in this fashion rather than describing the nature of the body. First Corinthians chapter two, same book 
as 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, where it talks about the spiritual body. It's talking about the spiritual body in the sense of chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The natural man does not receive the spirit of God, those things, but they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are discerned spiritually. That's the sense in which this new body is. But he who is spiritual judges all things. So it's not talking about the nature of the new body. It is a body of flesh and bones. It's talking about the fact that it doesn't have the sin nature anymore. That's been obliterated. That's been conquered. That's been eliminated. God has done a thing that we could not do. And so in the meantime, we accept his forgiveness. We hopefully enter into the abundant life that he's promised. We live our lives daily trusting him, letting him do what we're unable to do, looking forward to the time that we'll get a perfected spirit and ultimately a new and glorified eternal body without the sin nature anymore. He will do what we cannot do. Isn't that a great foundational truth of Christianity? Indeed it is. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we learn how important the resurrection of Jesus is. It's the foundation of things. We're Christians because he came alive again. He showed it indisputably. He proved it even to the doubting apostle named Thomas. So Thomas became a believer and gave the rest of his life for the Lord. He knew without a question of doubt, whatever, Jesus was alive. A great victory, a remarkable victory, an impossible victory that God does for us. Let us trust him. Let us commit ourselves to him. May we pray. Thank you, Lord, not only for what you did for King Hezekiah and Isaiah and the people back there, but what you did on the cross and what you do for us as we repent and put our faith in you, as we trust in you. Lord, you can do and did what we cannot do. Thank you for forgiveness, everlasting life, and all that eventually goes with that. Lord, help us right now to recommit or to commit, maybe for the first time all the way, to you. May it be, Lord. May you hear our prayers. May they be genuine and sincere. In Jesus' name, amen.